So, good morning. Yeah, my name is uh, Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I am very excited for this Advent season. I'm excited for the devotional. Um, I've already signed up for it, and excited to get the first one. I think Casey and I, maybe we'll do that over our dinner time. We got to talk about when to do that, but excited to do that with family. Uh, I'm sure we'll probably do it in our elder room. Uh, would love for you to, to jump in that with us, but well, we're not only going to do that, but we're also going to uh, jump into a new book this morning. We just finished the book of Ephesians, and for this Advent series, we're going to be in uh, Luke. And we're not going to do the whole book of Luke. We are going to be doing just one chapter, and you might ask why, and the answer is pretty simple. Like Claire and Michael are saying, we are wanting to kind of reset our hearts a bit and refocus on Jesus in this Christmas season. As a pastor, one of the things I've noticed is in the Christmas season, it's just a busy season in church. It's Christmas, the big deal, and which is great, but I can also just blitz through Christmas and not sit and meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done for me in the manger throne and the realities of what happened in Bethlehem. And so um, we are going to not only do the devotional, but we're going to walk through Luke chapter 1 and talk about the advent of Jesus. That word advent is um, a definition. I mean, if you look it up on the internet, and I did, is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So advent is the arrival of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus. And we are going to walk through Luke 1 to see the arrival of Jesus. And I actually kind of like that, um, that we're doing Luke 1 and, and not Luke 2. Luke 2 is great. It is inspired word of God. It's awesome. It is the classic manger scene and angels and shepherds and all of those things. And, and probably the story you're most familiar with as we go into the Christmas season. But the th I think why I love that we're doing Luke 1 is this is, I think, an unfamiliar, unfamiliar narrative to maybe a lot of you, especially if you're new to Christianity. This story that we're going to unpack this morning is powerful, and it sets the foundation for what happens in Luke chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start turning uh, to Luke chapter 1. As you're turning, I'll give you a little bit of quick context of this book. Um, one quick letter, we say book, but we these were actually letters from one person to another person. And so this letter, Luke, was written by Luke, who was a physician. And as a physician, he was a very detailed man. He followed Jesus's life closely and worked very hard to get the details right. Uh, one commentary I read said this, all scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean Luke didn't work really hard to get the details we have today. I love that. A very detailed person, and, and Luke, this author, is writing to Theophilus, most honorable Theophilus, some kind of high official. We don't have a lot on this guy, uh, but that's who Luke is writing to, and the purpose is very simple. He wanted Theophilus and others to know about his Savior. He wanted to knock down any false narratives that might have been going on at the time and, and go, this is what's true. This is what actually happened, not only to have accurate history, but so that they would also worship his Savior. So Luke starts by giving an account of Jesus coming in human flesh, um, but he doesn't start with Joseph and Mary. You would think he would start there. He doesn't. He actually starts with a different couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And of all the gospel writers, Luke is the only one, actually, who starts here. But this is a beautiful, beautiful story. So let's dive into this together. Verse 5. Just going to take this one chunk at a time here. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. So let's just orient ourselves to some of the characters in this narrative. The first is King Herod. Uh, He was essentially the functional king of the Jews. And so uh, Rome made him the like king of Judea uh, and ruled from 37 to 4 BC. There was some good in this guy's life. He was kind of the master builder and architect behind the temple uh, that he built in Jerusalem. Mostly bad, though. Mostly not a great king. He was a pretty dark and evil ruler who was pretty ruthless. He, uh, I didn't know this. As I was studying this passage, he apparently murdered his own wife, several sons, and other relatives. Basically, anyone who was a threat to his power, he just killed. And so if you thought you had awkward Thanksgiving dinners, this, this is just another level at King Herod's table, right? And in the midst of this darkness, this dark, evil ruler, there's a couple who shines, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Who is Zechariah? Well, he's a priest of, of this division of Abijah, which is one of the 24 divisions of priests. And as a priest, he would have had a lot of responsibilities, and specifically within the temple. The way it worked is these 24 divisions would have a full week where that division would serve the, in the temple, uh, and they would do that two times a year. And then whenever there was a major festival, you know, all, it was kind of all hands on deck, and they brought all the priests in. So that, Zechariah was one of those priests. And then it, then it was his wife, Elizabeth who was a descendant of Aaron, who was also a very notable uh, high priest in in the Old Testament, brother of Moses. So that's basic information on Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, I think what's more important is verse 6. They were God-fearing individuals, without blame, living in righteousness. And they were not perfect, uh, but they were pace-setters in holiness and devotion. And and as I was first reading through this passage, this was, it was verse 6 that actually stuck out to me the most. I just thought it was beautiful. I thought, man, if I got to the end of my life and I went to be with Jesus, and what was said of me at my funeral was that this was a man without blame who lived a righteous life, I'd go, wow, that would, that would be God's grace in my life. If that happened at your funeral, that he or she lived without blame, lived a righteous life, I'd go, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a, that's a life well lived. That was Zechariah and Elizabeth. But then there's also verse 7. Verse 7. Really important detail for this couple. They didn't have children, which back then was a huge deal. Uh, one commentary said, not only did lack of children deprive parents of personal happiness, but it was generally considered to indicate divine disfavor and often brought social reproach. So back then, people would associate infertility with some kind of sin in your life. If you're not having children, they go, well, clearly then you must have some kind of sin. Either you're talking about your sin or it's a hidden sin, but there's a sin in your life and God is punishing you for that sin. That's what people thought. But that doesn't make sense because that wasn't true for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were without blame. So this would have been a pretty tough pill probably for Zechariah and Elizabeth to swallow. This would have been confusing. Just for a moment, like in a lot of this narrative, just kind of put yourself in Elizabeth's shoes. She's getting older, you know, maybe over 60 years old. At this point, the hope of a child is just dwindling. They've probably been praying for years for a child. It had been confusing because they know that God controls the womb and, and he could give them a child, but he's chosen not to. Why? Questions, confusion. 
She would probably watch other family members or friends conceive and, and have one, two, three children. And that wasn't her story. It would have been a challenging place to be. And I just want to pull over for a couple minutes um, and just kind of speak to you as one of your pastors. This is not the main point of the text. Uh, but I just want to talk about um, this issue of infertility. Um, if you're a college student, maybe you just kind of grab these truths and put it in your back pocket for a later day. But um, for me, and I might have mentioned this before, but when I became a pastor, one of the biggest surprises to me was how common uh, both infertility and miscarriages were among couples that I was um, leading and doing life with. And it's heartbreaking. It's very common. Sometimes people talk about it. Sometimes they, they don't. And it's kind of, you know. But if that's your story, or if that's your future story, I just want you to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. They struggled with infertility. Why? Were they in sin? Was God punishing them? No. I think that's very clear in the text. They were super godly, super godly, without blame. So that means the reason for their infertility is that God, in his sovereignty, had a greater purpose. There was something bigger at play that Zechariah and Elizabeth just couldn't see, which means some of you might walk through this trial, and it's not correlated to any kind of sin in your life, but rather God has something greater in store, even if you can't see it. And my desire this morning is if, if that's your story, if that's your trial, my hope is that you see a lot of hope in the situation that we're going to unpack today, where God was clearly working behind the scenes in the midst of a trial. So what exactly was God up to? Well, we're about to find out. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, here we go. When his, Zechariah's division, was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. So just to get a little context here, the priest would be chosen, a priest would be chosen, to enter the sanctuary and burn incense. And this was kind of a big deal. If you got selected by lot, um, if you were chosen, it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There was like 18,000 priests at that time. And so to be selected was a real honor. And then what would happen is that priest would enter the holy place. So you had the holy place, really big curtain, and then the most holy place. So it's shy of the most holy place, but you were stepping onto sacred ground. There would have been in the holy place a lampstand, table for the bread of presence, and then this altar of incense. So the priest who was chosen would come in twice a day, the morning and evening, and perform his duties and light the incense and all these things. And while he was in the holy place, people would be outside, God's people would be outside praying, and then the priest would come out and kind of give this blessing based off a passage in Numbers. That's generally what happened. So Zechariah's name gets drawn he heads into the holy place, and then it gets kind of wild. Verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. So Zechariah is performing his duties, and an angel shows up. And if you know your Bible, you know that when an angel shows up, what's the typical response of people? They're, they're afraid, they're scared, they typically like drop like dead men, right? It's, it's a big deal, it's an explosive moment. So just put yourself in Zechariah's shoes. Nobody in your lifetime had had, had had an encounter with an angel. You'd never heard a story from your buddy about his encounter that he'd had. It's never happened. 
in your lifetime. But, but Zechariah, he's a faithful guy. He's doing his priestly duties. He's honoring the Lord. And then, lo and behold, his name gets drawn for the temple. He goes, all right, I'm doing this thing. So he's excited. He's heading in. He's, he's heading into the, mo- the, to the holy place. He grabs his incense, and then he turns, and all of a sudden it's like, boom, angel. Ah! And... <laughs> I did that first service, and I thought about maybe not doing a second service. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, I'm getting older, and um, all right. In my head, that's how it happened, though. It's like, boom, dead, right? Like, that's just, it's just a big moment to have an angel come up on the scene. It's like, God is with us. God's with us. So what does God say through his angel? Look at this, verse 13. Verse 13 says, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So, Boom, angel, right in front of Zechariah. Probably, I don't know if he stays on his feet or not. If he did, that would be impressive. But he says, do not be afraid. Why? Your prayers have been heard. What prayers? Well, um, maybe for a child, that could be true. But also, he's a priest, which means he was praying constantly for the nation of Israel. And he's saying, I mean, either way, probably one or both, he goes, joy is coming because a child is coming to you, and that child is going to be a blessing to Israel, Israel because he's going to turn their hearts towards the Lord. But something, there's kind of like a couple interesting things about this child. First of all, in verse 15, there's a, a unique assignment, never drink wine or beer. That seems odd, right, that that's in our Bible. What's going on here? Well, this isn't the first time that we see this command given in the Bible. So if you go to Leviticus, what it'll tell you is that when priests would go into the temple, they, they were, like, during that temporary period of time, they were called to abstain from any kind of alcohol. That's just, like, for their temporary service, that's what they were supposed to do. That's priests. But then you go to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, there's this thing called the, the Nazarite vow, in Numbers 6. Uh, and in the Nazarite vow... Um, essentially, the, the person that is committing to, and the parents are committing to, that child being set apart for the work of God. And if you took this vow, you had to do some unique things, like not cut your hair and, and not drink alcohol. So a couple examples in the Old Testament, if you know your Bible, is, is someone like Samson. You know, Samson and Delilah, he lost his power when she cut his hair, right? That was part of the Nazarite vow. The other person would be Samuel, 1 Samuel 1. Um, and, and all of his story with David, both of those, Samson and Samuel, took this Nazarite vow. So essentially, abstaining from alcohol was associated with being set aside for a divine task, whether that was temporary or for your whole life. So the angel here is saying, John, this child is being set apart by God even before his birth. Now, here's another question in verse 15. It says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. What does that mean? Seems interesting. Here's a couple things to consider. 
Sometimes when I hear people share their testimony or God's story, um, they'll use this phrase, well, I've always been a Christian. Well, that's actually not true. <laughs> it's not true for any of us in this room. Um, Ephesians 2.3 says that we are born into this world by nature, children underneath God's wrath. We are not saved until we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, it might be true that you were born and raised in the church and came to Christ at a very young age, surrendered your life to Christ at a very young age. That was my story. Um, and I go, awesome. But when you were born into this world, you're not born saved. You are saved by faith alone, by Christ alone. Okay, so that's one thing to consider. So then you go, well, what's going on with John there? Filled with the Holy Spirit, like even in the womb, what's going on? Well, you have to remember that Luke 1 is happening before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we're still in the Old Covenant. So, so in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would occasionally come upon or fill people for specific tasks. And so what the angel is saying is that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon John even while he's in his womb. Now, this doesn't mean that John the Baptist is sinless, only Jesus is sinless, but he is set apart. John's life was going to be marked by a continuous state of, of being empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, what's happening here is something that is uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean by that is uh, this was something that was going on in a very unique, specific moment in time that God was doing because he was paving the way for his son to come. God was anointing John to prepare the way for his one and only son. And that's exactly what the angel tells him in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 and 17, I mean, star those verses. Like, this is the purpose of John the Baptist. He's going to turn Israel to their God. That's his special purpose in God's grand plan of salvation. He was going to turn the hearts of many to God's Son. He was essentially preparing the advent or the arrival of King Jesus. That's what he was meant to do. This was the child that was to come. This, if you are Zechariah, this is incredible news. Incredible news. Not only are you going to now have a child, but your child is going to be the messenger who is paving the way for the Messiah. So what is Zechariah's response to this incredible news? Well, verse 18, how can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. What's the response? He doubts. He doesn't believe. He basically is requesting a sign here. So just quick observation, real quick. Um, people, godly people in the Bible, doubt at times. Abraham did it in Genesis 15. Moses did it, Exodus 3 and 4. Gideon does it in Judges 6. And then you got Hezekiah who does it in 2 Kings 20. All godly people, all doubted. All had moments of disbelief. But here's what's true. The doubts of godly people never thwarts God's plan or promises. So to me, that's really encouraging. It's really encouraging. Because if you have doubts, that's okay. God will meet you in your doubt and help you walk forward in faith. Which is exactly what the angel does for Zechariah. Although he kind of uses a unique tactic to do this. So check this out. Verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So 
the angel finally reveals himself. He goes, I am Gabriel. He gives his credentials. I stand in the presence of God. Essentially, I'm a big deal. And he was a big deal. <laughs> He's, Gabriel is uh, one of two angels in scripture who is named. It's Gabriel, and do you know the other one? Michael. Yeah, I heard it. So uh, in the book of Daniel, Gabriel is mentioned, and then in Daniel, Michael is also mentioned, and then also in the book of Revelation, Michael is mentioned. Now, I don't know who wins in the arm wrestling match between these two, but I I'll say this. If, if you have an angelic experience and one of the guys, like the name of the guy is Gabriel or Michael, that's a big deal in case you have an angelic encounter anytime in the near future. Just know those things. Zechariah would have known his Old Testament. He would have known Gabriel was a big deal, but he chose to doubt. So Gabriel makes Zechariah mute, unable to speak for a period of time. Everything was just, start, like all of that was happening in the temple. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got a bunch of people outside the temple praying, going, this feels like this is a longer than normal prayer gathering. What's going on? Well, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. So people are outside praying longer than usual, waiting for Zechariah. He finally comes out. And as he comes out, they go, what happened in there, Zechariah? And he goes, like, he can't talk. Nothing comes out. And as they're, like, kind of dialoguing with him, they realize, oh, wow, he's seen a vision in there, which would have been really exciting. They thought, man, well, not for Zechariah, but for them, like, God is speaking. He, he's, he's speaking again. He's, he's doing things. He's working. He's moving. All this is happening. And, and, and so what Zechariah does is he, unable to speak, continues his priestly duties until his time is over, and then he heads home. Which, can you imagine what that conversation's like with Elizabeth when he gets home? Like, you would come, he, he, my guess is he came home, and I don't know, he would have had to play some kind of Pictionary. I don't know how else to do it. He, like, he comes home, and he comes to the door, and he goes, you know, and she, did you just call me fat? You know, <laughs> no, no, no. You're, she goes, um, I'm going to be full with food. Are you going to cook for me? About time. You know, I don't, I don't know what that exchange looked like. Even if he didn't win the game in Pictionary, I'm sure he was like, whatever. She's going to find out real soon that there's a bun in that oven, you know. So that's exactly what happens. The, the passage ends with Elizabeth being pregnant. This is massive. Like, again, put yourself in their shoes. You've been praying for years for a child. Now, not only pregnant, but you're pregnant with God's messenger. And you can hear Elizabeth's joy in verse 25. So much joy because God had taken away her disgrace. The disgrace of no longer have, of not having children is now gone because God did a miracle. He did a miracle. And then it says in verse 24 that Elizabeth secluded herself for five months. We don't know exactly why, but likely just to worship God in joy and gratitude. And that's kind of the conclusion of like the main text of what we're going to unpack this morning. So what I want to do now is zoom out a bit. And I think we just need to understand the magnitude of this moment, of what just happened. God is sending angels. He is giving messages. He is setting aside people and a child like John 
for a very important task. This is super important. You have to understand that in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. And, and he spoke to his people through the prophets. And it kept happening, kept it, God's people were disobedient, 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 until Malachi. And then Malachi speaks, and God gives one last rebuke, and then God is silent. Not for days, not for months, 400 years, 400 years. Between Malachi in your book and Matthew in, in your Bible, I mean, from Malachi to Matthew, that's 400 years of silence, nothing. And on top of that, the last words that God gave to his people, not exactly rainbows and butterflies. Check this out in Malachi 4. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinance I commanded him at Horeb. For all Israel, look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. God gives one final warning in Malachi. He says, get your act together. If you don't, I'm going to strike you with a curse. So that means the last word God's people would have heard from God was the word curse. And then nothing. Generations come and go. Radio silence. But after 400 years, Gabriel all the angels, Gabriel shows up. He pops onto the scene with a message to a priest. This is monumental. This is a reminder that God is working in the silence. For them back then, for us today, God is always working. Even if it's in ways we don't expect, he is always working. But not only is God speaking again, he is saying the prophesied messenger is coming. Another really important verse in Malachi, Malachi 3.1 God says, see, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So this Elijah-type figure that Malachi 3 and 4 were talking about, that's John. It's not Elijah being raised from the dead and living again. No, no. This Elijah figure is here, this child, his name is John. So what happened next with John? Well, I want to skip ahead here, and you can go with me to verse 57. Um, this next text that I'm going to read actually isn't in our Advent series, so I'm not stealing from anyone. But this is important because this is what essentially just, this is part B of our story. God's word says, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives have that name. So they motioned to his father, Zechariah, to find out what he wanted the child to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. So don't think like Kindle Fire. Think like wooden tablet with wax. And so he gets the tablet because months have gone, gone by. This guy still is not speaking. Grabs the tablet and he writes, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, what then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. What an interesting question to ask if you are living in that time. What then will this child become? Well, what did become of that child? 
we, we don't have time right now to do a full biography on John the Baptist, but in short, he fulfilled verses 16 and 17, exactly like Gabriel predicted. As John got older, he started to look actually like Elijah of the Old Testament out in the wilderness. Uh, Mark 1.6 says that he had a camel hair garment, leather bell, ate locusts and honey in the wilderness. He was essentially a legend. He is the Bear Grylls of the New Testament. He was awesome. And he was spitting fire. He was just speaking truth to the people that would come to him. And what was his message? It was very simple. The king is coming. The king's coming. In the ancient Near East, they would have this kind of tradition where whenever like a king was coming to an area, they would send a representative ahead to just let people know, hey, get ready because the king's coming. That was essentially John's job. He said he was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare a way to pave a path for the king that was to come. And the way he did it was through two words. This was kind of his calling card, repentance and baptism. Repentance, baptism. It was kind of this one-two punch that he had. And, and I want you to flip with me actually one more page to Luke 3. Luke 3, because he's out in the wilderness, he's speaking truth. And then verse 10 in, in Luke 3, the, the crowd started asking him questions. What then should we do based on everything you just said? And he replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he told them, Don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? And he said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Every one of those examples is an example of repentance. What Paul, or, or sorry, what um, John is saying is, you're going this way and thinking this way. He goes, stop doing that. Like, turn from the way you're thinking and start thinking this way. And as you do that, your actions are going to follow. You're going to start walking a path that truly honors the Lord. So repent, repent, repent. And then along with repentance was this baptism. Now, this was before the baptism of Jesus. And, you know, like this is a, a baptism of repentance that, that John did where people would come and they would confess their sins they would repent and then be baptized. That's why he was called John the Baptist. But again, the whole purpose of all of it, of repentance and baptisms, all of it was to soften the hearts of the one who was, uh, for, for the people, for the one who was to come. Listen to the next, just the last couple of verses here in fifteen sixteen. Now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them are questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. As they're waiting for the Messiah, they're going, is it him? Is it that guy, John? And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am, uh, I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's whole life pointing to Jesus. And as Gabriel said in 1617, he is turning the hearts of Israel to the coming king. John knew his objective. He knew his marching orders. He knew who was coming, he knew his role, and he executed it perfectly. If I were to sum up John's whole life, the ethos of his life into one verse, it would be John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. Him bigger, me smaller, him increase, I decrease. John knew it wasn't about him. It was all about Christ. John knew he wasn't going to take away the sins of the world. That was Jesus. John knew that humanity was in trouble. He knew we were born children underneath God's wrath, and he knew that we needed God himself to come to earth to rescue his people. And that's exactly what Jesus did, the Son of God coming to the manger throne. 
living the perfect life, sacrificing himself on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God in our place, rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father. That's exactly what Jesus did. And now he is the hope of our salvation. Jesus, not John. Without Jesus, we are hopeless. And John understood that. He knew he wasn't the solution. So his whole life was pointing people to the solution. You know, as I was thinking about closing this message with some kind of like word picture, something to kind of tie this thing into a bow, uh, the thing I thought about actually was Finding Nemo. So if you were at my Salt Company sermon recently, you know that my son loves Finding Nemo. It's his new favorite movie, um, and it's been his favorite movie for a while. I've seen it many times. And hopefully that shifts. You'll know it shifts when I start using like Incredibles examples or something. That, that means he's shifts. But we're still on Nemo, and the premise of Finding Nemo is pretty simple. Um, Nemo is lost, and they have to find him. I don't know how else to say it. He's, that's the premise of the movie. So Marlon, uh, Nemo's dad, and Dory, his new friend, are off to find Nemo. And they find out that he's in Sydney, Australia. So they go, all right, well, we need to get to Sydney. And then they come across this school of fish. And there's this like fun scene where there's this back and forth where the fish are making all these different shapes and figures and objects. And, and eventually, Marlon and Dory go, hey, we got, we're trying to get to Sydney. And they go, Sydney, we know Sydney. Uh, you just got to follow the East Australian Current. And they go, well, where's the East Australian Current? And then the fish make this symbol. And it was like one big arrow. And I couldn't get a great picture of it. Like the fish start moving their scales and it like looks like it's flashing. And they're essentially just like that way. <laughs> just, just go that way and you'll hit the EAC. And, and they do. They follow the arrow and they, they find Nemo. I don't, I don't think that's a spoiler. It's a kid's movie. They found the fish. <clears throat> so, so as I was thinking though about John... And I was thinking about, like, John's job and role here on earth. I go, that's it. John's whole life was one big flashing arrow to Jesus. He's like, go that way. You want to know who to follow? Don't follow me. Follow that guy. From the moment of John's birth, his whole life was pointing others to Jesus. So my big idea for this whole morning is very, very simple, super simple. Our lives, like John should be one big flashing arrow to Jesus. So my question is very simple. Is your life one big flashing arrow to Jesus? John was passionate about Jesus. He loved talking about Jesus. That's all he wanted to do was talk about Jesus. He told everyone about him. And it's true that the things that uh, we naturally talk about are the things that we are passionate about, that we are captivated by. It just naturally starts bubbling up in us. So my question to you is, what are you passionate about? What do you find yourself talking about? If I were to ask one of your good friends, hey, you know, what is your friend love? What do they always talk about? Like, you can't get them to stop, stop talking about this thing. What would, what would they say about you? Is it Jesus? Is it something else? I'm convicted by this. Because for me, I can get passionate about a lot of different things. Sports, movies, vacations. I can talk for a long time about a lot of different things. But then I realize there's times where I'm actually pretty slow bringing up Jesus. I am I'm challenged by John the Baptist. I want to be like this guy. I want to be captivated by Jesus the way he was. And so Salt Church, we have an opportunity this Christmas season to hit the reset button on our hearts. There is a lot of things that we could be captivated by this Christmas season. A lot of things. Grades, parties, presents, family 
travel, Christmas tradition. And all of those things, they're not inherently wrong. All those things are good things. What I'm saying this morning is let's make sure that Jesus is the consuming center. Let's make sure our arrow is pointing in the right direction. Let's fall in love with Jesus all over again this Christmas season. And let's have the ripple effects of that reality be our life being one big flashing arrow to our king. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are so good that you came to your manger throne, that you emptied yourself, stepped off the throne of heaven and came to us. God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the one who is to come, the one who came, the one who's coming back. There is the first advent of your first arrival, and we look forward to the day of your second advent when you come back. But until that day, we just we want to be challenged by guys like John the Baptist. I'm so challenged by him. His whole life, whole life was pointing towards you, Jesus. Lord, help us to be the kind of church that points everything to you, that keeps our focus, our attention on you. You are worthy of it all. We love you. Thank you for the manger. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of John the Baptist's famous lines in scripture As he points again to Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. John knew that Jesus needed to become the living sacrifice for God's people, the Lamb of God in our behalf. And the way that the church remembers what Jesus did for us on that cross is through communion. Communion is for all believers, everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you have not yet put your faith and trust in Christ, well, today, I hope, is your day of salvation. Um, but if not, if this, that's not you, I would say just sit this one out. Um, but if that is you, if you are in Christ, my encouragement for you is very simple. Um, I just say, think on that word that John used so much. Repent. Repent. Is there anything you need to repent of? Any sin you need to kill in your life? Anything that you need to change? Anything that you need to turn from? As you think on those things, just like spend a little bit of time in your chair, think of those things, bring them to the Lord, confess it, own it, go, that's me, I totally blew it, I've been blowing it, ask for his forgiveness, and then come to the table and take the elements, thanking Jesus for what he did for us on that cross. So uh, there's stations up here in the front, one in the back and one behind that wall, they all have gluten-free options. Uh, I'd encourage you to take a moment to just reflect, bring those things before the Lord, take communion, and then we're going to continue and worship through song as we worship our King.